Electric bicycles are my jam. I'm turning into a nut for a good e-bike. It's easy to get around, we save gas not driving our car for short trips to the store, and I'm getting a little extra exercise. The folks at Velotrick are sponsoring a series of videos on my channel to show off some affordable e-bikes and help people get up to speed. It's easier than you think, and prices have never been more competitive. You can catch those videos on my YouTube channel, but if you're interested in shopping an e-bike, head over to velotrick.bike slash some gadget guy and look at their road bikes and fat tires. Again, V-E-L-O-T-R-I-C dot B-I-K-E slash some gadget guy. Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy. If any of those bikes look good to you, you can save an additional $60 off an already low price by using the coupon code SOMEGADGET60, SOMEGADGET60 at checkout. Once again, Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy and coupon code SOMEGADGET60. And I thank Velatric for being a sponsor on this show. I believe this means we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. Sorry. I just adjusted my armrests and I guess I didn't have it locked in because I went to put my elbow down and then it kept going down. I am one Carlos Magnell, aka some gadget guy. Uh, the SGG of this terribly named podcast series. The QA, of course, that's the important part as we like to make this an interactive conversation. Look back at some of the top news links over the last week. Maybe some news broke over the weekend or this morning and kind of get us into the flow of covering these to- uh, tech topics, keeping an eye on them over longer periods of time. We want to follow up on these stories more than just reading the headlines. Uh, first of all, I just want to do a quick mic check. I could not hear the pre-show music at all, no matter what I was doing to kind of route my own audio. So I hope that was, that wasn't blowing out people's uh, earbuds and stuff. But uh, we have an incredible crew already jumping in here uh, on the live stream, on the live chat. We got Brian Glaze. We've got Copacash. Uh, Copacash, it's his birthday. So everyone needs to wish Copacash a happy birthday. And I, I typed happy birthday in the chat. We got Simon Says Hypno, Otaku, Pakostin, Al Sabakli, uh, JGJ, Ricardo, Michael Corcoran, T-Bubs, Jabotnik. Uh, who am I missing? I, I thought I was missing. Oh, JFR, Vazikos. So, yeah. Um, did you have the subscriber fanfare? Let's see. Uh, let, let's, do, let's do a sad trombone test. We'll save the fanfare for... Um, actual, actual, uh, subscribers. Oh, Simon says Hypno, subscribe to Prime, 33 months. Thank you for supporting, uh, production on this show. We really appreciate it. Keeping the live stream up and running. And this fanfare of glory, courtesy of one Mr. Barry Johnson, who hooked me up with the stream deck, is for you. Sad trombone worked. Excellent. It looks like the subscriber fanfare also gave me some audio levels. I can't hear any of it. This is like the fourth week where I changed one little setting for another stream, and now I can't get the audio signal back to my own ears. So I'm, I'm totally doing this just looking at, like, levels and waveforms. <laughs> Simon says, no. <clears throat> I feel suitably gratified. <laughs> 
I'm already into a cup of coffee here. Hold on one sec. Michael Corcoran said that we all need to be uh, caffeinated, so I want to I want to take that suggestion seriously, folks. We've got we've got a really interesting show uh, to to kind of work out uh, to kind of put together. Uh, Standard format. We're going to be doing a little housekeeping into some news block and then into some gadget chat. We're going to be looking at those Pixel Fold, uh, Pixel Fold 2 leaks and rumors. Um, I, I'm sitting on a stockpile of gadgets and reviews and things to talk about here. Unfortunately, I'm in between a couple of embargoes again. And then it's not on the show notes. Um, but if we have time kind of getting into the gadget block, I'd love to have a conversation, a slightly more serious conversation sort of like the responsibilities of a reviewer and some of the disclosures that we go through. I ran into a really funky situation that I th- I actually would like a little feedback on. This has never happened to me before. And uh, on, on the podcast, this is, this is a public conversation, um, but on the podcast, I'd also like to kind of work out what, like what is a reasonable expectation of the audience to uh, detail a situation like this because I've never had to do it before. <laughs> that that was really cagey. It's not it's not doom and gloom. It's not that serious, but it is kind of serious in how I like to present the information on my channel. So uh, I hope everybody had a lovely American uh, fake rugby spectacular championship day. I don't know how punitive if we say the name of the game on a podcast on Twitch. Like, is that going to be a channel strike? I genuinely don't know. Um, but uh, we, we had a lovely meetup with some friends. A few more of our friends have, have kids, too. So Lex had some kids to run around with, and there was lots of, like, coloring and beads. I thought it was hilarious that for the whole first half of the game, the kids had no interest in the game at all, and they would stop everything they were doing to kind of stare at the screen for all of the commercials. So Marie and I come out of a, a world of Hollywood and casting. And we both, at, at one point, we, bo- we both worked at competing talent agencies. So it's always just naturally been a game of ours where, yeah, we're watching the super, we're watching the game. I almost said it. Oof, that, that would have been disastrous. We're watching the game. We kind of have a passive interest in the game, but really what we're doing is keeping score on how many of our former clients were in commercials and, and like who got more commercials on the big game. And so Marie and I were still doing that last night. Neither of us have worked in casting for, I, I see, I stopped, well, I, I stopped working at the talent agency at the writer's strike in 2008. So I haven't, I haven't been an, an agent or I wasn't an agent, but I was like an agent assistant. I was a junior sub agent or whatever the phraseology was. I, that's that's kind of coming up too, because two, I'm sorry. So in lieu of in-depth housekeeping, Juan has to go down and tell old stories about having worked in Hollywood. So apologies, this is going to sidetrack us here for just a second. Um, two really sad things happened back to back, uh, sort of the history of Juan working in entertainment. Um, the first was the, the passing of, uh, Carl Weathers. And I've really struggled with like contributing to any of that conversation. Carl Weathers was repped at the talent agency that I got my start at. Um, when I started at that talent agency, I did something kind of unique. 
Um, when you start at a talent agency, usually one of the things that you do is you start in the mailroom, you build your way up to some kind of desk gig, and then you become an agent's assistant, and then you, you sort of work your way into deals so that you can become a full-fledged agent. I didn't do any of that. So I had no relationship with any of the agents there and none of the talent there. But at that time, this is sort of 2006, it was still a really big deal that for voiceover, you would call the actor into the agency to record their auditions. This was sort of before the whole boom of home recording equipment. We were just at the very beginning of that, and actors were getting really excited that, like, oh, to cut a voiceover audition, I don't need to leave my house. But at that time, that was still out of reach for a lot of performers. Not, not, not in terms of costs, but just the experience. Like, it takes a lot of time to build up a familiarity with, like, audio recording. So Abrams Artist Agency hired me directly into running their booths. I was their booth director. And we had three booths, and I would often hire, like, part-timers or day players to kind of keep traffic going through the other two. But it was, like, a, it was a hardcore job. Like... You'd be there at, you know, 7 a.m. You wouldn't leave until all the auditions had been accounted for, edited, cleaned, uploaded to these servers. Like, it it was a lot. And it was, it was like a 12-hour-a-day kind of job. The two gentlemen who took me seriously at first, the, the first two to really, like, sort of express like, oh, you're the new booth director, let's get this done, and, and just kind of roll with me, not like test me out or kind of question my experience or anything like that. James Avery, who played Uncle Phil on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and Carl Weathers. And uh, I very early, um, very, very, like in one of our very first sessions, we booked a really cool gig uh, for Carl Weathers based on one of the recordings that I worked with him in the booth. On my very last day at Abrams Artist Agency, I had a session with Carl Weathers, and he actually seemed disappointed that I was going to be leaving the agency. It wasn't like an emotional moment. It wasn't like Carl Weathers was really upset, but he took the time to shake my hand to acknowledge, like, hey, we've done some really cool work together, and I wish you well. And it's like a moment that just stuck with me, like... It, it was kind of it was kind of a big deal. So uh, to hear that he had passed was was one that hit really close to home. James James Avery was the guy who kind of took his role as everybody's dad seriously. James Avery actually chastised my mom that we weren't allowed to have dogs when we were growing up because we were moving around uh, from base to base to base. And my mom was like, I have three kids. There are animals enough already. I don't need to add more animals. And it's just this really great moment. Like, James Avery knows who my mom is. (laughs) And they they fight about how I was raised. That's hilarious. But Carl Weathers was, if James Avery was like everybody's dad, Carl Weathers was like everybody's cool uncle. And it it just, uh, it just really hurt. So shortly following the information of James Avery's passing, the talent agency that I got my start at is no more. Um, Abrams Artist Agency was run by Harry Abrams, who was sort of a, a pioneer of commercial uh, casting, uh, commercial talent agency, talent management. I had a very complicated relationship with that talent agency. 
And if you've ever read anything about how Hollywood really works, it can be a little dirty and a little grimy, and there are lots of highs and lots of lows, but it's just weird. During the pandemic, Abrams' artist agency became A3. And then uh, very, very recently, A3 sold off a significant portion of their assets to Gersh, another talent agency. And we just caught the news that now, having completed the sale of those of those assets, that A3 is just gone. And like when I point back to, I mean, it was already difficult enough because I would say like, oh, I got my start at Abrams. And if you're in your 40s or 50s, you know what that means here in Hollywood. But if you're in your 30s, that had already sort of evaporated from people's minds. Like, what, what is Abrams? Oh, I'm sorry, it's A3 now. Oh, okay, yeah, that little agency that used to be on Wilshire. Like, people still knew that. That's the funny thing, is like, I'd be in a conversation with someone in Hollywood doing the Hollywood schmoozing thing, and you're like, oh, yeah, weren't you guys on Wilshire? And you're like, yeah, I, I mean, I left before they left, but yes. Um, they can't remember the name of the agency, but they remember where the office was. But now that's gone too. So, um... I don't know. It just felt like a really, just a weird double whammy of personal history stuff and coming at a time where I'm already getting that feeling of like, yeah, I'm kind of middle-aged and these things are now starting to kind of walk away from me. Those, those experiences are like, I'm talking about things that were like from 15 years ago. And I still feel like, yeah, that was just, that was just a couple years back, you know, the writer's strike. No, not the most recent writer's strike. Three writer's strikes ago. So um, it's, a, it's a lot. So um, I, I, apologies for kind of sidetracking that, but there was the Carl Weathers commercial during the big game. And I, I appreciated that they added a little tag just to kind of in memoriam um, sort of recognize him. But like, I had a really hard time after that one. Like... Movies that I very regularly revisit or fun TV shows that I, I've, I've come to appreciate. You know, like, every now and then I like to kind of go through the first three seasons of Arrested Development. And <laughs> I'm tearing up. For, for, for our friendly get-togethers for the big game, we do a Chili Chili cook-off. C-H-I-L-E versus C-H-I-L-I. So it's like a New Mexican green chili stew against, like, a Tex-Mex style chili. And, uh... I'm sitting over it, and I've put in some chicken, you know, throwing in some cumin, lots of New Mexican green chili, just in in, just an unholy amount of garlic is in this big pot, <laughs> and I'm pushing the potatoes into this pot, thinking, man, you take this home, put in some some vegetables, you got yourself a stew, <laughs> and it's just like I almost broke down in tears because <laughs> it's like it's one of my favorite moments of anything that Carl Weathers has done is playing himself in Arrested Development and just how how excited he was, how how much fun he had with a role like that. So, sorry, I didn't mean to get us started off on, on anything quite so maudlin, but I do need to transition us back into some, some proper housekeeping here. And Ricardo is rocking my socks. This is incredible. Um, gifting some tier one subs. Ricardo, this fanfare is for you. And I, I mean, I would go through each one of these. This is a, incredibly generous of you. And I really appreciate the support uh, for the show on, on the podcast. All right, let's, let's blow through these, this list here. Ricardo is gifting tier one subs to coldest winter 
awesome opossum, uh, treats and milk, endless oars, domodakilla. I'm sorry, I don't, don't think that's how you say it. Um, Mhi one two three or Mhi one two three, Rami Vaden four oh five Win Mag, I M Z Anime and Nick Fell. Um, dude, that is incredibly generous. Just drop in ten tier one subs like that. I thank you so much. Uh, I I really do appreciate it, and it's it's those gestures that help keep the stream up and running. Um, oh, Jabotnik, man, like, everybody at that talent agency had some crazy Carl Weathers stories, and apparently he was also known for throwing some pretty good shindigs. I, unfortunately, was never invited to, like, go hit, like, Carl Weathers' place for a good party, um, but yeah, I just, uh, it's tough. It's tough as you get older and you start, you start losing a few things, and you want to hold on to memories, and like, man, like, how come I just never you know, like, called him up. It's weird to think, you know, like, I worked with him a lot, and we did a bunch of projects together, and we would, like, chat on a lunch break occasionally. Like, it, it, it he was, like, a person, and we cared about these things. And I could have just, could have just called him. It's weird to think, and I should have. Anyway. Um, <laughs> McCorcoran. <laughs> Sorry. Looks like Ricardo bet on Kansas City. <laughs> uh, Ricardo, also, okay, thank, thank you again. Anything for the cause, plus it's fun to hear you reading the handles. Because <laughs> I always get the names wrong. Um, uh, okay, so you, you all indulged me in a, a little trip down memory lane, and, and I really do appreciate that. Um, yeah, Simon says Hypno, Apollo Creed, Dylan, Action Jackson, and a man who knew how to make a good stew. Uh... Oh, Michael Corcoran, uh, you, you did a, I briefly worked for an ad agency in 2012, Arnold Worldwide. So uh, they did the flow commercials for Progressive Worldwide. So Stephanie Courtney is the woman who does the flow commercials, and she used to come in for a lot of casting. So after I left the talent agency, I actually did a lot of work with Stephanie Courtney, and I'm so upset that I wasn't able to record this, but okay, guys, this is like Juan really digging into the Hollywood stuff here. Before I was doing tech and gadget reviewing, I did a show with a buddy called Movies You May Have Missed, and... Our, one of our first guest episodes was to kind of um, was to kind of celebrate the support that we'd gotten from Jeff Kanata from the Totally Rad Show. Now he does a DLC podcast. He was just a really good guy, and like very early on, he gave us a nudge and like supported our show. And I mean, that's like we saw a tenfold increase in traffic. So. Jeff Kanata came on to talk about one of his favorite films that nobody had ever seen. That was the that was the the tagline of the show. What is your favorite What is your favorite film that none of your friends have seen? And he brings up a movie that Stephanie Courtney was in. And at the time, I had just done a session with Stephanie Courtney, and I was like, "Hey, yeah, I was just wondering if you could pick your brain." And she was like, "Nah, I don't really want to talk about something on a like a podcast or something." Um, but you know what I can do is I can hook you up with the director. <laughs> and so I got to talk to the director of this film and 
He was like, he just called me randomly. Like, it wasn't like we were ever able to set down a time. And you're like, I can't record. I'm, I'm on a, what? Like, on the time I was like on a Windows mobile phone. You're like, oh, oh no. But it would have been great. Because then I could have like actually taken that audio to Jeff Kanata. Sorry. That, that just spurred a whole other little tangent. But Stephanie Courtney is awesome. Flo from the Progressive Commercial, she is incredible. And she is hilarious. And, uh, I, you know, she doesn't need to do anything. She can work on any project that she wants to because she's been doing um, those progressive commercials. But I always kind of hope, like, I'd see her in more, like, you know, like film or TV projects or something because she's so good. She's, like, one of those classic, like, improv actresses. So, anyway, um, let's chew through some... Uh, Let's chew through some uh, some some housekeeping. We had a lot of stuff going up over the last week. We had OnePlus reveals. We had earbuds. Um, nope, I don't want that. Let's screen share. There we go. So obviously, right before we went live last week, uh, we 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 uh, all were able to take the wraps off of our OnePlus 12R reviews. So the 12R has been on the channel. Then the day after that, I did follow that up, like I said, uh, during last week's podcast. We, um, I did a review on the OnePlus Buds 3, where I'm really happy. So this is one of the things that makes me nervous. Like, I've been working in audio and production for 30, almost 30 years. Yeah, almost 30 years. And I still, like, get a little anxious, like, do I really hear what I'm hearing? Is this really, like, the audio quality that I think is good? Do... Is that going to translate? And so I purposely didn't watch El Jefe Reviews, um, his review of the Buds 3. Not because I didn't trust him. I was worried, like, his assessment might kind of influence my opinion, and then I'm even more lost in the, the forest for, am I correctly or adequately reviewing these earbuds? It's a lot of anxiety that goes into reviewing that we don't often talk about. And that's a lot of pressure because I really do like I've made, I've made most of my career on my ears. So like if there's an assessment of an audio product, I really want to know that my ears are on point. <laughs> so anyway, I, I published this and then immediately scurried off to go watch Jeff's review of the OnePlus Buds three. And I was like, Oh, Okay. He's hearing stuff kind of the same way that I am. All right, good. And we're still consistent where this style of bud seems to fit him better than it fits me. Okay, we're on track. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really like, how consistent am I being really? So um, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty great. Oh, Cedric Owens, my OnePlus Buds 3 are out for delivery. I can't wait to give them a spin. Um, they're very good in that hundred dollar space, and and I have a whole video that kind of details why I think that they're that they're cranking right there. Um... <laughs> Zhao Botnik, I'm pretty sure you have viewers that aren't even thirty years old. Not a useful comment, but I still wanted to place it, <laughs> projecting my insecurities. Yeah, I know there are a lot of folks. I'll start pulling up references to things and realize like, oh. Oh, you don't know what I'm talking about at all. That's kind of on me. <laughs> all right, so we got the OnePlus Buds 3 out the door. Then this one was another kind of a big deal. It's not even a video. I I hate reaction videos. I really think they're stupid. The vast majority of I'm going to sit 
and play someone else's content and occasionally like shrug or look at the camera or say, that's right. You know what I'm talking about? Um, not, not good. I, I mean, I really feel like that horrifically violates the idea of commentary and critique. You don't have a fair use argument if that's the level of, of engagement, of reaction to the media. I think for the most part, the big channels that do reactions are really just content thieves. It, it hurts my soul um, saying to you all in this fine audience today that I did a react video. <laughs> I didn't want to, but I started listening to the Petapixel podcast in the episode they did following the Unpacked event, and they started talking about the Galaxy S24 Ultra, and they've staged a part of one of their podcasts to say, is it enough? Is software and AI enough to launch a new phone? And I feel a lot of the photography guys are way behind on mobile photography. I feel like they've been patting themselves on the back for appreciating real camera bodies, real proper cameras, that they're starting to miss some of the most exciting developments in photography. And I feel their conversation started confirming my assessment of their experience with mobile photography. Because they start talking about the Galaxy S24 Ultra like, but nothing's changed. It's just software. And that ignores some of the things that have changed. And their handling of topics like AI seemed to illustrate how unfamiliar they are with machine learning and generative content. And they were hosting this conversation immediately following an Android launch where I feel like the same question, is it enough to launch a new iPhone with only these minimal changes from iPhone 14 to iPhone 15 also would have been a totally valid conversation. But we didn't see them phrase a debate or a a question, sort of a, a talking point as directly following the iPhone 15 launch. So I put a bunch of thoughts. It's an hour-long video. And I am as long-winded as they are. <laughs> so I, I, I apologize. I hate the format. I'm not going to spend time doing other, like, takedown videos. And, and a part of the reason why I wanted to, to do, do this for the Petapixel podcast is because I'm a huge fan of Chris and Jordan. I really like their camera conversations. I think they are some of the most experienced, practical, uh, photography-based content creators I've ever seen. And they take a very out-in-the-field approach to their commentary. They helped influence how I structure a lot of my phone camera reviews. Um, Again, my phone camera reviews are not, I took a photo of this terrible thing, and then you can tell by the good colors that iPhone cameras are the best until we do a blind shootout, and then for some reason Google Pixels always win, but that's not how average consumers are. I'm so over that as part of the techie commentary for smartphone cameras, and the reason why is because I felt like we can treat mobile cameras like regular cameras. So especially through their tenures, they went from the camera store to DP review, 
that was part of the influence that helped me format my own camera reviews. And I just feel they are so much better at photography, they should be doing a better job of detailing things like sensor size, optics, equivalence. All of those things would be a massive contribution to the to the discussion, but instead we've got a bunch of camera guys going, oh, but don't phone cameras suck. Am I right? High five. And that's a shame. That's a shame when I've got something, you know, like I can pick up this Vivo. And this Vivo has a sensor that is directly competing against my multiple thousands of dollars of hardware in my Panasonic Lumix G9 and the lens that I've got on that thing. And it can go head to head. And in sensor level performance, it can kind of outpace some of my micro four thirds options, even with the resolution disadvantage. Now, a bunch of people are like, oh, but interchangeable lenses and oh, but you need to do this and you need to do that and proper cameras. And you're like, cool, you're not wrong. But can I take my Lumix G9 and put it in the front pocket of my Levi's 501s? So you have to sacrifice a lot of discrete photography capabilities to arrive at your better camera body with interchangeable lenses. And if we're not having that fair of a comparison, plus don't even get me started on things like editing, where I can edit that footage directly on device too. So, sorry, it's a long conversation and even elements of it I I wasn't fully kind of jumping on. You can catch that video (laughs) where I talked about all that stuff. It was um, probably not, I, I, I really don't like it. And, and it's also, it's like confrontation because the very, very few times, like this is now, I think the third specific, um, this is the third specific instance of me purposely singling out one piece of review content to respond to. Um, I did this with uh, the LG V30 with uh, a, a David. I'm, I, I love David's work, and I think we're still pals. I mean, I think he he accepted what my criticisms were. I mean, we're still friendly on threads. Um, <laughs> but he had a lot to say about the LG V30 audio, and I responded to that. I did that with another reviewer who seemed to pick apart the Sony Xperia 5 very unfairly, and that only resulted in a bunch of, like, requests for more toxic confrontation from the audience. So it's not where I want to live. I don't want to be that guy who is taking a specific example of a review and picking it apart. But I feel like there are times where like, hey, we're going too far. And if someone doesn't challenge this idea, what are we doing as tech reviewers? If you're just going to regurgitate a company's marketing, that's not reviewing. And I feel like people who are that learned on cameras, and, and this is a podcast that I really, if you're into photography at all, I think you should be subscribed to this podcast. But I'm putting less and less stock into their mobile conversations. Like it, They don't seem to know what they're talking about when they shift to phones in the same way that they really know what they're talking about when they're talking about camera bodies and lenses. Sorry, I... Um, I've <laughs> got a lot of, of, of comments here to catch up on. Dave Burns would like everybody to know that he's 28 this month, so he's not an old yet, but he's getting really close. In two years, you're going to be an old, and then suddenly no one will want to market or advertise to you. Uh, <laughs> JGJ is also like, I'm also under 30. 
<laughs> Sorry. It's like a big old swig of coffee, and I'm also trying not to burp on the mic. Um, hold on, let me let me catch up with this. Uh, Cedric, I think you did a good job not explosively replying in that video, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but I am trying to point out a certain consistency of fallacy in some of their discussion. Um, Nick Gay, uh, the discussion was so one-sided, they don't know Android, so why bother listening to their review of Android devices? And see, this is the thing that makes me sad, is the way the majority of the segment played out, you could tell two of the three participants were significantly more focused on iPhones. But you might have missed a really interesting contribution from the other member of the conversation who... I think broke down the question properly sort of replied or answered to what the situation was and kind of pointed out like what you guys are saying is kind of silly and and see, and that's like the makings of a really good podcast, a good camaraderie between the hosts and at differing opinions. You don't want lockstep. You don't want everyone on a panel to just regurgitate Apple marketing. And if we, we don't kind of point out those moments in these kinds of conversations and the fact that there is dissent and that there are differences of opinions and that they're not like, okay, I guess we can't be friends anymore and the show's over because you don't like iPhone. That's how we actually improve these, these, these gadgets. That's actually how we help inform consumers. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this React on a show that I really enjoy. I'm not going after just iPhone channels and Samsung channels because, like, why? They're just fan brand channels. There's nothing to contribute to an audience that's going to be that ratcheted on only believing good things about their favorite company. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Let me get through some of this. Michael Peppertech, I was cringing at most of that. Felt more research should have been done before they, they did that discussion. Embarrassing for how long Petapixel has been around. So I did kind of twist a knife a little bit because in that conversation, I also mentioned that when they have reviewed phones like the Xiaomi 13 Ultra, which is here on my desk, this is one of those phones that's always within arm's reach, they tend to get a lot of things wrong. There are, if you catch their Xiaomi 13 Ultra written review on petapixel.com, there are things in there that are missing and also incorrect. And that to me is... A shame. It's one of the most complete camera packages of 2023. And it got this, it got a, first of all, it got a review. That's impressive because they don't review a lot of international phones like that, especially the Xiaomi's and Vivo's and Oppo's. But um, it, uh, it, it doesn't accurately portray all of the capabilities of the phone in a way that consumers might appreciate. So it's, it's rough. <laughs> oh, Pacosin, you're wrong, Juan. You get all sorts of ads for credit cards once you hit 30. <laughs> yeah, but not the cool pop culture stuff. You're irrelevant to, like, the, the driving force of trendy things. Um, uh, sorry, we're actually still on housekeeping, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut this down and get into some news blocks. I did do uh, a tutorial. Make your own YouTube with an old-school RSS reader. Uh, just a helpful tips and tricks video. So if you're tired of the YouTube algorithm messing with you and your favorite content creators, you can just subscribe to them directly and get notifications within minutes of when they put up 
some new content. And then I was just really excited to, to kind of be on this one again. I used to do a lot of local news and uh, I just haven't been doing as much. It's, it's a lot of work to get down to a studio like at 4 a.m. and prep for an on-camera segment. But uh, I, did, I was a guest on Rich DeMiro's uh, radio show, old school radio, like call in and he, he had it set up so that we could be on camera. And then he took a clip of that. I, I was really appreciative of this. He took a clip of our conversation about the OnePlus 12 and he incorporated that into his, his like proper review. If you know anything about old school news, you kind of make a, a segment for one market and then you can sell that segment or produce that segment for other affiliates. So someone mentioned in the Discord, like, hey, I just saw you on the news. And they're like in Washington. And you're like, whoa, that's cool. So it went pretty wide. I want to thank Rich for having me on. I hope that this is now a a tradition. He had me on to talk about the OnePlus 11. He brought me back on to talk about the OnePlus 12. And I said, we should pencil in, you know, like when the OnePlus 13 launches, I'm down. Let's chat about their their next phone um, when we get there. But yeah, so if, if you were in some of these other smaller news markets, you might have seen my face pop up <laughs> talking about the OnePlus 12. Uh, I, I really do miss doing live news. It was always calamity. You, you'd show up, nothing would work. I was trying to do a demo once on smartphone camera tips and tricks, and we were supposed to have this great video feed directly to the control room so we could like full screen what was on my camera screen. We were... 90 seconds to air, none of it was working, and we eventually like roll out a TV so I could plug in a TV and they point a camera at the TV as I'm using my own personal phone. Notifications are like popping up on the screen and everything, and it was such a mess. And we still got a segment out of it. It's it's like the most visceral thrill of now you're just live in front of millions of people. Southern California, the news market here is kind of insanely huge for morning news. So don't screw up. <laughs> you just got to do something. So um, it was it was pretty intense. Uh, yeah. I love those. I really miss doing those. I was pretty good at them. I don't know. I, I, I don't, we'll see. I, I need to lose weight if I put myself back on camera again. All right. So um, 40 minutes into the podcast, <laughs> we're now done with, uh, with uh, housekeeping. Um, <clears throat> we've got stories to keep an eye on and follow up on everything that we're going to be talking about for the, uh, all of the housekeeping links. And then also all of the news block will be on the show notes for this week's episode, some Uh, there will of course be the audio version of the podcast. If you want to, um, if you want to listen to that. And then I'm also going to put out just a question here, especially for folks in the live chat, but for anyone who catches the replay, because we have quite a few listeners that are listening just on the audio feed. If you would like me to, I can take the Petapixel Podcast React, just pull the audio, and turn that into a standalone podcast download. If you'd rather listen to it rather than watch a YouTube video of that, um, hit me up. Drop me a comment somewhere, either on somegadgetguide.com or on the video or you know across social media. Just let me know, and we can, uh, we can set that up as a separate standalone listen. So um, I'm going to take a quick drink of water. I'm going to hydrate because Jman150 said I needed to hydrate. And he's right. I'm getting a little clacky. Hey, podcast listeners. I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. 
Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, Sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to somegadgetguy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. A quick posture check. You're right, J-Man, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like melting into my back pillow right now. It's not a not a good look for for a podcast, not not a good look for a show. So, um first up, this is a continuation of a story that we've been loosely tracking um for a couple months now. Apparently when you're a billionaire and you you in <laughs> a government agency like the SEC requests your presence to testify um under subpoena Apparently, if you have billions of dollars, you can say, I don't know that I want to do that. And then a court will actually weigh in on that to see if you have to. I don't know. It just seems like there are certain, you know, like all animals are equal, but just some animals are more equal than others. So this one was just nice to see the follow up. Uh, this is coming by way of Engadget, written up by Cheyenne McDonald. Court orders Elon Musk to testify in the SEC's investigation of his Twitter takeover. In a follow-up to a tentative ruling made in December, a federal judge has ordered Elon Musk to comply with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission subpoena and testify again in its probe of his Twitter takeover, Reuters reports. Per the order, which was filed Saturday night in a California court, Musk and the SEC now have a week to work out a time and place for his appearance or it will be decided for them. The SEC has been investigating Musk's purchase of Twitter, now X, since 2022, over concerns about his lateness in disclosing his stake in Twitter. So uh, this is going on now, a two-year investigation, and the next step of that from the SEC is finally pinning Musk down to start the testimony that he has been issued a subpoena to comply with. I don't know about y'all, But I don't believe if the SEC came knocking on my door that I would be able to afford more than an hour's time with an attorney who would be good enough to delay a subpoena from the SEC. I'm pretty pretty sure I would lose that fight on the day. (laughs) But here we are. Weeks and months later, finally a judge has weighed in and said, no, they have a subpoena. You need to testify. And they were playing all these games of like, well, you can't make him testify because he now technically lives in Texas and uh, it's a California court. And now we need to measure how much time he lives in Texas versus California. And Grimes is saying uh, that Elon Musk is a good dude, I guess. (laughs) 
Like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? So we should get some information uh, as to when that's going to go down. So this is what's crazy, though, is like granting him this autonomy. It's not that he's going to testify in the next week. It's that they will have decided on a time and a place for him to testify in the next week. And who knows? That might be a month from now. Might be six months from now. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot on his calendar. So we'll then have to follow up on this again when we get to that point. It's definitely an interesting turn for Elon Musk as we've seen that sort of change in public perception. Um, Twitter is a raging dumpster fire that has lost most of the value. What is it valued at right now? Can someone please just kind of pop in? Last I read, it was valued somewhere around $17 billion. So it's lost like $35 billion of its estimated value from the purchase that Musk carried out. So if, uh, I don't know, someone, someone catch what Twitter's market cap might be, it's not looking good. And then he also was just denied that payday that he tried to give himself from Tesla. And so that was another like $50 billion that he technically doesn't have now. So it's, um, it's rough. And he's now like, I think he's now like the third richest man in the world. It's got to sting. He's, he's someone I feel is so narcissistic that it probably really does bother him in a, in a Silicon Valley, the TV show kind of way. He's still a part of the Tres Comas, uh, you know, club, but he used to be the leader, and now he's not anymore. And I bet his ego is actually bruised by that. <laughs> Gormlord, but Elon said they have more users than ever right now. So I loved, I, I wasn't really going to make this a part of the podcast, but I loved that, like, in that window between Taylor Swift deepfakes propagating all over Twitter and pictures of Drake's junk propagating all over Twitter, that Twitter saw a significant bump in their App Store rankings. Um, I think they were the number one downloaded app for a day or two on the Apple App Store, and they climbed from being deep in the 70s. I saw them peak in the low 20s on the Google Play Store. And you want to, like, I bet you an Elon Musk type dude is sitting there like, yeah, we're popular again. Look, everybody's downloading our app. But if the reason they're downloading your app is for deep fakes and nudes, that's not the win you think it is, man. <laughs> you're, you're not winning at life here. It's pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> All right, um, just another uh, science-y story. Uh, I, don't, I don't follow up on this kind of stuff as much. I'm really not super into automotive tech. I mean, not like I used to be. I used to, like, work on friends' cars, and we'd bolt on turbos to, like, little, uh, you know, Japanese hatchbacks and stuff like that. Um, I, I, can, I can wax romantic about, like, the Honda CRX for another hour of this show. Um, I had a friend who had an Eagle Talon, and that was an amazing car to work on. It was really fun to drive. Um, but uh, this one just kind of popped up in my newsfeed, uh, sort of apropos of nothing else that I usually search for. 
Uh, Shell is immediately closing all of its California hydrogen stations. The oil giant is one of the big players in hydrogen globally, but even it can't make its operations work here. This is written up by Mac Hogan over at InsideEVs.com. Let me scroll down just to a little bit. Unfortunately, the reason why Shell is closing up shop should give Toyota Mirai, Hyundai Nexo, and Honda Clarity fuel cell owners even more cause for concern. In the letter announcing the closure, Shell Hydrogen Vice President Andrew Beard said they were shutting them down due to hydrogen supply complications and other external market factors. It's not hard to see what Beard is referencing here. And they start talking about some of the other challenges in costs, operation, and then the adoption of hydrogen-powered vehicles. Now, I'm, I'm a fan of EVs. EVs bring a lot of their own problems to the table. But I feel there is a long-term conversation about mobility, about travel, and about commuting where we start the conversation off with EVs. I believe Dave Burns would probably join me in agree with me here that eventually we get to a point where we are better demonstrating city planning to make cities more walkable and bicycleable, and that commuting becomes a much different conversation after we've applied better urban design to housing markets, getting people to their jobs and home again in in better and more um environmentally conscious kinds of ways. But I do like the idea of energy generation from singular plants or from things like solar panels and battery cells rather than energy generation in an internal combustion engine. So each of these challenges, I mean, like EVs help us move past one point of the commuting problem. In, in how energy is generated in the vehicle to move the vehicle, how energy is stored, and then that applies to a motor. EVs still bring all kinds of other issues. Like if you're talking about air quality, you still have like tire and brake dust, and there are all these other things that still contribute to the problem. EVs help one point of that conversation. It improves upon it, and it helps, it helps prime the brain for other suggestions to work their way through. Hey, if EVs can do this, what else can we do? If, if public transportation can look like that, what else can we do? It just helps plant a seed. It gets someone to reconsider what their relationship was with an internal combustion engine car. And if you can get them just questioning a little bit, you can start introducing other ideas, other concepts, and you can make some of these other ideas more fashionable. Like, if you need to go to the grocery store, let me tell you, it's nice being able to just hop on a bicycle, get there, get a couple things for the day, bicycle home, you got some fresh air, a little exercise, it was really nice, and you didn't have to run your car, and you'd be surprised that often it's as faster, faster to do that on a bike than it is to get in your car, navigate traffic, find parking, and do all that other stuff. Depends on where you live, obviously, but my experiences have been overwhelmingly positive. So, a <laughs> short story, incredibly long. One of the reasons why I'm sad about this is because those market forces, I was really looking to hydrogen to be another one of those conversion points. We, we have huge problems to solve with infrastructure to incorporate hydrogen. It is not as simple as, 
well, you take out the gas tank and you put in a hydrogen tank and then everybody fuels up hydrogen instead of gas. And I wish it were that simple, but it's not. But you get someone to reconsider their relationship with the internal combustion engine. They're, they're doing something a little different and the vehicle is operating in a different way, in a cleaner way than what a traditional gasoline-powered car would do. Excuse me. And so that's a bummer. I was really hoping that hydrogen would be sort of another fork of this reconsider uh, of this of this conversation. But again, we're sort of beholden to very short-term interests in business. The infrastructure never rolled out like I thought it would. I was working with a director at uh, Newegg who had a, a, I think he had the Honda. I might have that wrong. Might have been the Toyota. I thought it was the Honda. Anyway. And he was going out of his way. He was driving that car. That was his daily commuter. He had to go a little ways out of his way to find a hydrogen station, which meant that like at least 10% of his range was immediately killed because commuting out to the hydrogen station and then driving somewhere else was, was sort of a, a, a waste of, of that fuel. But he was still like, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm really passionate about it. This is a really fun car to drive. It's really great. So it, it, it's, it's a bummer that in a very car-heavy state like California, we can't find those opportunities to offer alternatives. It's the alternative that matters more than the exacting minutiae of how does this directly impact climate change one-to-one. It's how do you get someone just to rethink what they're doing during their day? We get so caught up in the sort of uh, empathy, uh, sorry, we get so caught up in the apathy of just sticking to what's familiar. And that's sort of the doom point we're seeing for the human species. We could change, eh, but why change? And if we can't go after major industries, if we can't go after huge corporations, and if we can't contribute to that with our own personal um, lifestyle decisions, then we're kind of doomed as a species. It's going to be really bad. So this one, this one hit me just like, again, I don't seek out a lot of news on cars, but every now and then I'll catch something on, on my feeds and you're like, oh, oh, actually, yeah, that does kind of suck. And that was one of them. This, this does kind of suck. California is the place to look at offering a better infrastructure for an alternative fuel source. And I feel like we really dropped the ball. I feel like we really let this one down. And uh, it, it's a shame that we can't. We can't keep some momentum going up there. Um, oh, Jabotnik. In my city, uh, the public social support taxi company uses Mirai's. That's actually pretty cool. I, I love to hear that. Um, Pakistan, FCEV are super cool. The infra is a massive problem, though, with U.S. being massive in comparison to other countries where the tech is being adopted. That doesn't help either. And again, it's not going to be United States. This is going to be a state-by-state solution. That's why I'm even more bummed that California couldn't make this idea a little bit more popular. Because where California goes, other states like New York will probably follow. And if you can get, say, like California, Oregon, and Washington on an idea, well, you've just locked the world's fourth largest economy. If you can get all the West Coast states playing ball on something the rest of the world will be much more interested in how that technology or in how that new initiative plays out. 
And that's why I'm upset. Like, if we couldn't stick the landing here, it's not going to happen in Texas. <laughs> yeah, Gabaletta. I mean, again, this is what I'm kind of alluding to. My issue with EVs is not even with EVs themselves, is the inefficiencies, aging power grid, lack of renewable and planning for future recycling and proper, proper disposal of old EV batteries. When I point out how much I appreciate what EVs have done, I'm literally talking about just that operation of changing a user or a driver's behavior in how they power their vehicle. And that's it. That's what I think is the primary win for the EV. Now, when we talk about things like inefficiencies, even with aging power, uh, even aging power grid and where so many of our power sources are probably coming from dirty, um, uh, dirty, uh, power plants, um, I still feel you probably have an overall net positive where energy is generated in larger quantities from a singular source rather than the city is still powered by this dirty power plant and every driver has their own little mini dirty power plant. And that's how we get around. If we are sort of containing and localizing a singular power source, even with all of those other issues in the chain and in our power grid, I still feel that is a step better. And that has a small but important ripple effect in other parts of the conversation where I am storing electricity in a battery. Where else can I get electricity from? Hey, you know what? We might want to look at throwing solar panels up on our home. And from there, we are starting a bottom-up approach to just re-examining our behavior. If we don't break free of a gasoline model, a heavily subsidized gasoline model, we, we won't find those other opportunities to better contribute to the grid, make those grid improvements, and then get other people to consider other methods of locomotion to get around their neighborhoods and to commute to their jobs. As soon as we start that, I feel like the EV, because we're so car-centric in the United States, I feel the EV is the perfect place to start. And then people start reconsidering other aspects of their behavior. And that's, to me, what the victory is. Um, If we can start a process that minimizes or reduces our dependence on massive, dirty power plants and encourages adoption on other technologies like solar and, and home batteries, unfortunately, like you won't get Americans just to do that, you have to incentivize it in sort of clever sideways ways. And then Americans get on board. Like they have to feel like they're clever and they're cool and that they're, they're strong and they're tough and they're rugged individualists. Well, if you're a rugged individualist, how can you, how can you depend on a a dirty power plant? Oh no, a rugged individualist takes care of their family's own power. And I don't want to share my power. So I've got solar panels and batteries. So I've taken care of my family and my power. Those were guns, gun sound effects, because America. (laughs) Sorry, that was so lame. Let me take another drink of coffee. I don't know if I'm caffeinated enough for this. Ah, let's see. Mm-hmm. Get this out of the way here. Okay, so um, hydrogen, gone. Shell, pulling out. 
this is another one. I, I'm bringing this up because, like, I don't feel we need to spend a ton of time on this. I would just like to point out that there is a certain trend in conversation when we talk about, like, privacy and security and, like, oh, if you own an Android, boy, that's not very secure, but Apple does all these things to protect you. And Apple is really not liking these new regulations that say you can sideload apps. And as soon as you let the iPhone sideload apps, then your phone will be infected with viruses. Because that's not how malware or viruses work. So um, you know, having like a singular point of attack and having a walled garden approach to privacy and security doesn't mean that you're infallible. So all of those all of those sort of like emotional appeals to not letting you have more control over your device. I, to a point, I do kind of agree with the sentiment that if you want to do something ridiculously stupid with your computers, you should kind of be allowed to. I don't know. I don't think it's that big a deal because you can install software on Macs and that doesn't seem to be the catastrophic doom and gloom scenario that Apple fans are talking about with sideloading or having alternative app stores for the iPhone. Because this was a pretty major story that I feel like didn't get quite enough attention. Uh, Written up by Dan Gooden over at Ars Technica, a password manager LastPass calls fraudulent was booted from the app store. The name of the app was LastPass, L-A-S-S-P-A-S-S, and basically existed just to confuse people and trick them into giving the app their LastPass credentials. Um, So from the article, as Apple has stepped up its As Apple has stepped up its promotion of its app store as a safer and more trustworthy source of apps, its operators scrambled on Thursday to correct a major threat to that narrative. A listing that password manager maker LastPass said was a fraudulent app impersonating its brand. Uh, At the same time this article on ours went live, Apple had removed the app titled LastPass and bearing a logo strikingly similar to the one used by LastPass from its app store. At the same time, Apple allowed a separate app submitted by the same developer to remain. Apple provided no explanation for the reason for removing the former app or for allowing the latter one to remain. And And there apparently was another update down at the bottom. But yeah, so like, at some point, Humans screw up. Like, when we bring up these stories, don't you always see kind of like an inequity in the reaction? Like, Google removes these five apps that were riddled with malware. And everyone goes, oh, see, look how bad Android is at security. It's full of holes. People are going to take advantage of you. Oh, Google can't do anything right. You need to have... And then... I bring up a story like this, and I got replies on social media. Well, see, Apple got rid of it. Apple did the right thing. They eventually found it. it not to mention, you know, they say that like thousands of people were affected by this, but Apple eventually found it, and they did the right thing. They got rid of that bad app. And it's all because there is a natural inclination for that person to side with Apple. They're a fan of Apple, and Google is the bad guy, so everything Google does similarly is is bad or wrong or something like that. So we don't need to harp on this too much. Malware is going to hit you 
no matter what your strategy is. A walled garden, singular approach is not inherently more secure when mistakes like this can get through. And and we've seen in the past, there have been other instances of uh, Apple developer software being compromised. And so then people who don't have access to proper Apple software developing tools will submit these apps and somehow they will also make it through the verification process to the app store and then iOS is compromised. At the same time, it's also like Apple can't make a good browser secure to save their lives. All these people like, oh, who's want to use a Chromium browser on an iPhone? And you're like, Safari is the leakiest, insecure piece of software I think I've ever seen. <laughs> you are constantly fighting massive issues with Safari just vomiting your data all over the internet. So let's not pretend that Apple's singular approach is quantifiably better in any way. It's better for marketing because it's easier to explain Apple doesn't let you do things with your phone and that keeps you safer. In much the same way that we make the joke that no one can eat steak because babies can't chew it. And that has been their approach to on-device security. If anything, we should be pointing out some of those other victories where when waves of malware strike, if you have an infrastructure that's used to dealing with viruses and malware, it's better able to figure out what to do with viruses and malware, where the reactions to very similar threats on Windows seem to be corrected for faster than when we see some of those, some of those gremlins pop up on the Mac. I'm speaking specifically about the Mac Defender bug. Um, there was a, a rash of, of this kind of uh, malware that you would install and then it would kind of lock you out of your system. And, and we saw it first on mass on windows and it was pretty quick before we saw a reaction from Microsoft and we found a way to kind of clean it out. We went months on Mac OS where Apple was sort of ignoring that the problem even existed and was deleting posts accordingly, uh, according to people that frequent the Apple forums and support, uh, support sites uh, would, would delete, mentions of it and then eventually rolled out a security patch and everyone patted themselves on see apple got rid of it they they did the right thing they finally i, I know lots of people were affected and it took them like a whole month longer than microsoft did but no apple knows what they're doing apple keeps you safe and it's the same thing here so best practices we are the group of nerds in this chat that we can talk to our family and friends and say like double check <laughs> just because it has a similar looking logo doesn't mean you're installing the app you think you are and you are not safe from this kind of casual apathetic app management solution even on an iPhone so all the people who downloaded LastPass might have been giving up all of their password data to another uh, entity and now it's on LastPass to correctly educate their their customers on how to change their passwords and and properly protect their data. And I feel like LastPass should be able to send Apple a bill. <laughs> like we should be able to charge you for the time taken out of our day in correcting for your mistake in allowing an app to impersonate us on the app store. But of course they won't be able to do that because then Apple would take an extremely punitive view 
a future updates to LastPass. And then I'm sure we'll we'll already see, like Apple is just going to copy all of the functionality in LastPass and then claim, oh, but we have our own built-in password managing and key tools and, and make it an ad campaign to take that money directly out of LastPass's uh, hands. But anyway, um, we can move on. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, from Pacoston. Two things. Apple allowed the malware to reach real users. Apple doesn't allow you to install useful stuff they deem dangerous. So, yeah. <laughs> Kapakash, how did it make it to the App Store in the first place? They approved an app which was comically similar to a very popular service on iOS because humans make stupid mistakes. And this is not unique to Apple employees, but we need to point it out that it's not something Apple employees are immune from. They make dumb mistakes just like anyone else. And we cannot sit back and say that the App Store is some paragon of objectivity and virtue. People approve or disapprove apps submitted to the Apple App Store. And sometimes they get it right. Most of the time they do. And sometimes they get it really wrong. And sometimes they abuse their authority, like the WordPress situation, where they can bully developers into trying to make them give Apple more money. They are beholden to the same evolved primate mechanics as any other industry. And when they believe their own superiority is when they're also at their most dangerous for their end users and for everyone else around them. Um, yeah, see, Gabaletta, this is exactly what I'm talking about. One of my coworkers needed to have their iPhone scrubbed clean and reflashed because malware in their phone, all because of reckless usage. You are not safe, and I really, I'm really frustrated that Apple sells an idea of security that probably contributes to people doing stupid and dangerous things with their phone because they believe Apple's marketing, that's going to protect them. And we really do need, uh, for the people we're closest to, we need to disavow them of that idea. All right. Um, <laughs> sorry. I just got, someone was asking me about the flipper, uh, the, the flipper situation. And then, um, <laughs> someone else replies, no, don't make them ramble about their Bluetooth protocol again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, okay. So we've got, oh, we've got one more, we got one more major story. So, um, just another kind of. Uh, twist of the knife. A, a little while back, we talked about um, movies purchased through the PlayStation Store. I don't, I don't even know like all the pieces and mechanics of this because I really haven't purchased a movie in years through any kind of online or streaming style service. Uh, a couple years back, when I really started getting into rebuilding my NOS, um, I just started buying discs. And now I have a stupid collection of discs again, but I've been backing up my discs to my own personal NOS. I'm not sharing that data. I'm not redistributing. But for my own personal local entertainment, that's where I'm choosing to put the movies and TV shows I care about most. But Sony 
recently lost the license to a number of films, and then those films disappeared from people's catalogs. And Sony said, well, again, our terms of service, you don't really own it. You own a license to watch it so long as we have a license to share it. And so you really haven't purchased anything. And when we lose it, you lose it too. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't know if there were any conversations about like refunds. I, I, I personally didn't follow up. That's on me. But now we're seeing the impupification of mergers rearing their ugly head. And if you did business with, uh, <clears throat> with Funimation, you're also losing some of your content. Well, let me take a quick drink of water while this is up on the screen. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet, and I hope you check out what they have to offer. Thanks, Juan Carlos, for allowing me to be part of your show, and um, I want to introduce myself to you guys. My name is TK Bay, and I've been doing YouTube for quite some time, almost 10 years now, and you can find me online by just looking for TK Bay either on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, uh, but the general consensus is uh, I'm a tech reviewer. I provide a an interesting way of approaching tech by uh, the same way you would actually go ask your friend for help. This is generally the consensus of how my channel runs. Um, I review anything from Android, iOS, uh, PC computers, scooters, um, basically, you know, drones, anything that you think of as consumer tech, I generally try to get my hands on it and share with you guys my opinions. And of course, any troubleshooting or even tips and tricks that can help you enjoy your tech even better. Uh, again, thank you very much to Juan Carlos. But if you'd like to check me out, just look for at TKDSL8655 on Instagram and Twitter or TK Bay in YouTube. Okay. Uh, this is from AnimeExplained.com, written up by Garcine. Uh, Funimation to shut down completely on April 2nd, deleting purchased digital copies upsets fans. From the article, Funimation merging with Crunchyroll isn't some breaking news that we're hearing for the first time, but do you know what is? Customers who have purchased digital copies of the series on the app will not have access to them anymore. Uh, it was officially announced by Crunchyroll that Funimation is shutting down its app and services on April 2nd, 2024. However, existing Funimation subscribers will be migrated to the Crunchyroll app. That means these customers will merely have to log into the Crunchyroll app using the Funimation login details. But the catch is they'll have to bear the increase in prices. So prices are going up from $5.99 to $9.99 a month. And if you had purchased individual uh, shows or movies, those aren't cataloged on Crunchyroll. They don't have a, the same system of purchasing. So all of those purchases go away. I really still like the idea of streaming. Like, I'm paying you... <sighs> I'm paying you the price of buying a, a Blu-ray every month, and then I can browse your entire catalog of content. I feel that is a fair relationship. But so many of these older styles of like, I bought a movie on Google Play. <clears throat> We're going to see them fall prey to this kind of licensing and relicensing as time progresses. It was sort of the big problem that we saw with like music back in the day and why now music streaming services have all kind of shifted to this model. And you don't really buy music on the internet now. You just pay like the price of a CD every month and you get really high quality streaming music. What I think is kind of interesting is the music models, as, as viscerally 
antagonistic as I can get about companies like Spotify, um, we haven't seen the turn on music streaming to squeeze and ratchet consumers as aggressively as we've seen it on video streaming, right? Like in the last couple of years, as I've been a Netflix subscriber, we've seen prices rise a bunch of times. We've seen the, uh, the start of ad supported tiers of those products and we're watching them uh, eliminate the old plans, the grandfathered plans that used to be more fair in how you would subscribe to their service. It hasn't happened on Cobas, hasn't happened on Tidal. Amazon Music is pretty healthy. Apple Music is a pretty good service. Spotify, the direct relationship between Spotify and the consumer hasn't changed dramatically. If anything, I'm upset that it hasn't changed fast enough and that I wish Spotify had been more aggressive in doing things like actual high-res streaming. That's the main reason I, I shifted over to Cobuzz in the, in, back in the day, and I'm never leaving Cobuzz because I like their, their uh, treatment of copyright holders better. I like how they, they build their model better. And I just like that they built their service on high-res and at least CD quality for everything that, that's on their catalog. So I just think that's kind of curious. All of the video streaming services have much more aggressively, and obviously the costs are higher. If you're streaming audio, even high-res audio, your bandwidth costs are nowhere near what video streaming costs to, uh, in, in terms of servers and maintenance and bandwidth, all that stuff. But we've seen over the last couple of years how much more aggressive the video streamers have tried to squeeze consumers. So I, it just this came as yet another step in that on that path. You had an agreement with this company to say, I am giving you money to have access to these shows and movies. And now that's just being taken away from you because that agreement cannot be maintained after another merger. I feel that is a pretty good start for a collection of nerds to get together and consider discussing some kind of class action lawsuit. If there's not going to be some kind of compensation for the money that went into this based on this kind of plan and how you have promoted the idea of purchasing content, not purchasing a license to watch it for a short period of time while we own the license, then I think a lawyer could get in there and, and probably do a little damage. You know, get you one of them fat checks, you know, like, oh, in the class action, everyone gets $3 back. But if there's no corrective action to this kind of business practice, then companies are going to increasingly play fast and loose with licenses. I mean, look at what HBO Max is doing with their catalog. They've cut so many shows and services. They, they, we're, they're probably going to be canceling that Acme movie. Like, it's a done movie. But it's just better for their financials if they report this as a loss and they can just kind of dump it and it'll never see the light of day. You're like, how can we do business like that? How, how is this now what we do with media and entertainment? And especially in the United States where like the media we export is one of our more significant <laughs> exports. And instead... Got a bunch of people who are looking at short-term quarterlies, financials, tax bills, and then say like, oh, but if we report a loss over here, then we don't need to pay this. And then technically that actually makes our company more valuable. And that's a horrific long-term idea. 
that is grossly unsustainable and it's going to do way more damage to all of these brands in the long term. But you know what? For the next quarterly, we saw the line nudge up a little bit. So maybe we need to fire more people and, and kill more content. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? It, it's such a bad look. So I'm very disappointed in Sony. <laughs> I, I thought it was already kind of bad that all of the anime streaming services are now kind of under one umbrella. Because what we see, we immediately see what happens. Prices are rising on consumers. The plans are getting less generous. And they're doing away with one of the feature benefits of what their competitor was. They absorbed their competitor, and now they're getting rid of one of the benefits that competitor held over their service. And that's... That's really rough. That's not a good look for the future of our entertainment. Uh, Michael Corcoran, yeah, I'm still salty. Uh, removed Westworld seasons one and two were great. Um, yeah, Jabotnik happened before the Batgirl movie apparently was almost done and pretty good, but it made more sense financially to cancel the whole project. And they still put out the Flash. <laughs> JGJ, you know what's funny is my wife and I were just talking about this. I mean, Drew Carey show was the canary in the coal mine since it's not available widely on streaming. And I've been going through, I now have a collection of DVDs. Like, they're not even available on Blu-ray. But movies that just don't exist anymore. And it is freaky. It's no grand work of cinema. But, like, I really enjoyed the mockumentary stylings of Drop Dead Gorgeous. Um, I think it's a charming, funny movie, and it's got a... I don't know, it should have its own little twisted cult following. It's its a cool little film. It is so difficult to find that movie, like, streaming anywhere. I, and that's another part of the problem, is I'm sure someone can go and look and dig through some video streaming archive or something, or find, like, maybe it's on Amazon, I don't know. But, like, it is so much more difficult to find where does this movie or TV show live. And, like, what JGJ is saying, like, hey, you talk about Drew Carey show. You just want to rewatch, you know, oh, Ohio, you know, like, great, awesome. I should not have to work that hard to find where it lives so that I can find a copy of it to stream. But if I go to eBay and I find the DVD set of the Drew Carey show, I mean, yeah, it's going to be more expensive than like a month or two, uh, or probably a TV show that ran that long. It'd probably be more expensive than like three or four months of a streaming service. But then I own that show forever and I don't have to care ever again where that show might end up excuse me, I'm, I'm coffee burping here, where that show might end up on a streaming service. It's, it's getting really ridiculous. <laughs> DTNL. Cough, cough. The Internet Juankive, a.k.a. the Bagnelliverse. It is also kind of shocking to me how many movies and TV shows you can find on the Internet Archive that probably shouldn't be on the Internet Archive. Um, I don't know who the right holder might be, but uh, I got this itch i really wanted to rewatch when worlds collide classic 1950s end of the world sci-fi i mean all of the best kind of like hokey rocket ships miniature photography over the top kind of melodramatic acting it's it's a glorious film 
and there's a pretty good copy of it on the Internet Archive. And you're like, I don't think that should be. I guess whoever owns it is not making it or enforcing it or I, I don't know, but I, I did a search for it and Internet Archive popped up and I pushed play and I was watching the movie. Like, that's how this should be. <laughs> it should be this easy. So before we get into kind of the, the, the last sort of bit of this show and we're talking about the gadget block, I would like to bring up um, someone criticized me last week because uh, I was pointing out some of the trends in um, uh, coverage for, the, for Apple's mixed reality headset. So Apple recently came out. I don't know if anyone knows about this thing. It's a it's a VR headset, but with cameras built into it so that it can do mixed reality. So there are some augmented reality features, but what this headset is, is a mixed reality headset. So, sorry, that is so, so silly of me. So anyway, during the show last week, I was pointing out, if you're already seeing coverage kind of drop off, you know, it's only just now making it into the hands of people who really pre-ordered it. And we're seeing kind of an explosion on social media of Glasshole Pro Maxes going out there and doing dangerous and irresponsible things with their mixed reality headset. But someone point blank hit me and said, hey, that's not fair. It's just making it out to market. And I bet you we're going to see a rise in search traffic. And we're going to see a rise in interest now that people are really using it. And I don't know about anyone else in this chat, but I think we would all agree that there's a fallacy to that thinking. We think that there's been more interest and that there's going to be more coverage, but really we see a spike in, in whenever we try and track trends over time, we see a spike at the initial sort of onset. There's like this excitement over the initial coverage, which happens before the device ships to consumers. And as soon as the device actually makes it out to people, we see a drop off. So I kind of took that to heart. I mean, like, if there is growing traction on Apple's headset, then I, I really do need to eat some crow. I was not being fair. I was judging it from a distance, and I shouldn't do that. I hold up other people to that standard. I should hold that standard to myself. And, like, for example, I'm going to call out the Petapixel podcast. I need to call myself out if I get this wrong. So I wanted to see, have we seen a concerted uh, rise in search traffic for this headset, um, and what would that look like? So I feel the only fair way to compare the current conversation around Vision Pro is to track it back to the initial reveal. Because the initial reveal was huge. That was huge traffic. It's the middle of an Apple keynote. They're at that spaceship conference place. You know, Tim Cook goes out and says, AR is a profound technology, and we're not making an AR headset. And everyone went wild. <laughs> so I, I went back and I said, okay, let's just do a simple Google trend. The broadest term, Apple mixed reality headset. Because I'm sure that's what everybody's searching for. Apple mixed reality headset. Um, obviously, no. I put Vision Pro into the trend. And I tried to leave that as concise as possible so that any sort of additional like Apple Vision Pro you know, the more words you put into that search, the less likely you're getting a good representation of all the people searching for it. So, uh, I was kind of surprised to see Google Trends show me this. 
So this is um, past 12 months. So obviously from February 2023, it's a flat line of less than one, <laughs> zero. There was zero search interest in the term Vision Pro because back last year in February, a bunch of influencers were still talking about Apple Glass or some sort of Google Glass style competitor that never came to pass, even though we've been talking about that for 11 years now. But then on the actual announcement for Vision Pro, we see this ranking. At, there's a spike at up to 72 out of a possible 100 in terms of interest. So when you put in other search uh, topics, you can kind of compare what's more or less popular on a scale of 0 to 100. So Google, over 12 months, ranks Vision Pro at a 72 immediately after the keynote reveal. And then obviously it, it drops dramatically over the next couple days. And then we see a little bump early into January when more of those influencers were doing their second hands-on under guided um, hands-on briefings from Apple. So very little was still coming out, but Apple was really manicuring the conversation around Vision Pro. And those spikes hit like 14 and 16. So compared to the 72 spike, that is much, much lower. But then once we get into the beginning of February and the devices start shipping, Google Trends is estimating a 100 in the week of February 4 to February 10, when these devices really started showing up in people's hands. But this is not based on the actual trend data. This is their estimate. So they're estimating that Vision Pro is now significantly more search interest um, popular than it was back in June of last year for the reveal. Back in June, that was 72. They're estimating now it's got to look like an even bigger spike of interest has hit. So that's, that's really interesting to me. I like, okay, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe there is so much more interest in Apple's headset. So let's break this down. Instead of comparing against the June reveal, let's take a, a shorter window look. So instead of 12 months, let's kick it down to 30 days. So I kick it down to 30 days, and now the daily traffic is more granular. So remember, we got that 100% spike estimated for February 10th. Well, if I kick it down to 30 days, uh, Google Trends now looks like this, where you know, we, we catch those earlier bumps in January. And now the top spike is for February 4th, literally a week ago. And that's now the 100% spike. That's the peak interest over this period of time. And every day since then, we've seen dramatic drop-offs in search interest. So from February 4 to February 5, it drops from 100 to 87, then down to 66, then down to 52, then down to 40. Well, this is very different than their month-over-month -month estimate that by the end of February, it would be spiking to 100, to peak to the top interest in that search term. So I said, let's get even more granular. What does the last week look like since I made this uh, comment a week ago, and now we're getting the hourly and the daily uh, shifts where the peak interest was on February 5th at 11 p.m. And that's our 100% spike. And then every day back to 11 p.m., we're seeing about a 20% drop off. 
So it dips during the day, then late at night, it peaks to uh, it peaks to its next peak, and then it drops, and then it lifts, and then it drops, and it lifts. But we can see that this is a general day crescendo in the search interest getting to today. Uh, February 12th at 10 a.m. is down to a 17. So for where it was last week at 100, it is now at a search interest of 17. So... I'm not bringing this up to slam the Vision Pro. I'm bringing this up because we keep we keep assuming a quality of conversation. I highlighted this on the Petal Pixel Response podcast. We immediately question what Samsung is doing in this space, what Google is doing in this space, and then we point to things and say, "Oh, but the value drops off, or the trade-in deals aren't as good, or search interest has plummeted week over week on this new phone launch." Apple hype journalists, people in this industry of tech commentary, have been promoting the idea of Apple VR, AR, or MR with nothing to show from Apple for over 12 years. We got a surge of search activity the day we started getting actual unboxing videos from people who pre-ordered and had the Vision headset shipped and they could actually physically handle it and show it to their viewers on camera. And every day since that first peak, we are seeing the search drop just like any other tech product. The search drop here has not been as dramatically bad as the Galaxy S24 Ultra, but the Galaxy S24 Ultra is a very iterative smartphone design. There's not a lot of interest in what, is it, what does it do, what's different, how is it better than the S23 Ultra. You can accomplish that in a very short conversation. Apple launching the first XR goggle solution after more than a decade of hype from Apple journalists and, according to these Apple journalists, more than 15 years of patents and development and R&D has already plummeted in the first week that the product is out. And we're already seeing that reflected in the public conversation. People walking around doing wacky things with Vision Pro are already recalling some of the ire that we saved for glass holes back when Google Glass was a thing. I was watching um, a morning news show and one of the anchors was like, wait a minute, you're allowed to drive with the Vision Pro? And the other anchor just went off. You're not, but they are. They're driving with these stupid glasses. And she used that phrase. She called Apple's headset stupid glasses. And that is a very important little bit of information for us geeks to internalize. That's how other people see us from outside of our hobby. And we've got ambassadors that are not doing a good job. So the same thing that befell Google Glass. Google Glass had terrible ambassadors. It was only people that could afford to go to a Google store and have them fit this thing to their face and had enough money to pay for a $1,500 heads-up display. Those are the worst people to have introduce your tech to average everyday folk. No surprise that we coined the term glass hole based on those experiences. Like, I'm sorry, everyone remembers that picture of Robert Scoble in the shower with his Google Glass, showing a bit off, a bit too much of his chest for my tastes. Like, I don't want to think of the rest of Robert Scoble in the shower. So that was a bad look. 
people walking around and doing Vision Pro E things while crossing the street or while driving their Teslas is an increasingly bad look for Apple. And it does not reflect what this device is actually capable of, or it doesn't further the conversation around VR. It just sucks all the air out of what mixed reality could be. And it's an, it's an unfortunate turn of events because now that people really have it and developers are able to start crafting more experiences for it, that's where social media outlets and platforms are deciding that, well, the conversation's kind of done. Now it's time to move on to whatever the next fad thing will be, and that's what's going to populate my threads for another week. So that's pretty... I just felt like that one was worth replying to because, like, if I get this thing wrong, I want to know, oh, you know, like, there's something else here. Or this is defying a trend that we usually see with tech. Vision, the Vision Pro, this mixed reality headset, is not defying any of the consistent trends that we've seen in how a new gadget is discussed. It's, if it's Apple, it's hyped up by tech journalists, and even that hype is not enough to sustain the conversation as that device really makes it out into people's hands. The only valuable part of that conversation is when those tech journalists and influencers have access to the device before anyone else can get their hands on it. So they know it is in their interests to continue supporting a relationship with Apple where they get early access so they can get the most lucrative monetization on their content. Because if now, if they're just getting into Vision Pro now, they are not going to make nearly as much money as the people who had early access. And if that doesn't color your perception of the relationship between Apple and journalists, I don't know what else can. We are doomed as geeks if we keep thinking that this is the earnestly held beliefs of these tech reviewers who get to go to Apple campus to have guided product briefs and tours of the product and aren't allowed to say anything about the product on their own. And even Apple photographers are responsible for sharing their likeness as reviewers and influencers so that Apple can manicure the images and make sure photos are shot so you don't see the battery cable as apparently. That's all Apple manipulation of the commentary and the conversation surrounding technology. Nothing about that should be handled with any kind of credibility. It's a very unfortunate <laughs> situation for some of my friends. I am very close with some of these people who are kind of caught up in this machine, and it's not on them because they need to monetize their traffic and they need to make a living and they're in this business. But <laughs> we need to call out that Apple is responsible for this type of media management and this type of marketing, uh, marketing hype. So anyway, we, we can get on. Why don't we uh, spend some time talking about the Pixel Fold? I'm going to take a quick drink of water here real fast. <sighs> Dave Burns. I can't wait for MindGeek to help get that interest back up. Is there, is there, are they going to help uh, with a rise in that interest? I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, 
Oh yeah, a DTNL. I'm certain there's a John Redinger video out there that should make it very clear what happens when you speak your mind while reviewing an Apple product. Yeah, I believe the phrase he used was blacklisted, uh, where he was blacklisted by Apple over his coverage of the iPhone XR, a phone that Apple did not supply him with, but he bought with his own money and had problems. And he shared those problems with his audience and Apple chastised him for it. And yet, you know, you still can't avoid that that game, though, because he's still out there producing a significant portion of his content on Apple products because... John Redinger's videos make a lot more money than mine do. <laughs> so uh, who has been catching these Pixel Fold 2 leaks and uh, rumors? I want to highlight this one from uh, WCCF Tech is the one I, saw the, uh, one I saw first. But I believe Android Authority, yeah, they have the watermark on it. Android Authority sort of broke the story on what the design for this might look like. Um, so this is, a, potentially, this is a look at a prototype of the Pixel Fold 2. It's got a very large square-ish camera bar. So one of the defining design elements of the Pixel, here I'm going to pick up my Pixel Fold 1, has been this largely horizontal camera bar that sort of goes the whole width of the device. Also on my Pixel 8 Pro, you see this kind of visor. And it looks a little like Bender from Futurama. I really like this look. Um, what we're going to see for the Pixel uh, Pixel 9, it looks like instead of tapering to the sides, it's going to be more of like a raised flat oval that goes the width of the phone. But on the Fold, if we're going to incorporate larger camera sensors, what this looks like is moving one of the sensors underneath the other two and allowing that to have more space for other things like camera flash and microphone and all that other stuff. So you move some of this side and the flash, uh, yeah. So you move that to the side and then the cameras sort of stack above and underneath each other in a more square look at that phone. Um, I almost picked up a phone that I'm not allowed to show you yet as an example of another kind of phone design conversation. I'm really tired. We were up kind of late last night after the big game. Um, So I need to make sure not to do dumb things (laughs) like break embargoes. But um, I don't necessarily hate that that's what this looks like. I'm a big fan of phones like the the OnePlus Open. And the OnePlus Open has a comically large circle on the back of one panel um, so that you can uh, incorporate larger camera sensors And so instead of having this kind of large circular dial, you just sort of move the camera sensors, put one underneath the other, and you make it more of a square. And I get it. It kind of is in keeping with the Pixel design philosophy, but I do wish it had a little bit more of that horizontal look. Um, (laughs) Uh, Dr. Claw 77, that camera bar on the leak looks like poop, like the Pixel look they've been wearing for the last few years. I like the current pixel design philosophy. I think it looks sharp and it is much more identifiable out in public. So I can't always tell what model of Samsung someone might be rocking, but I immediately know like, oh, that's a pixel and that's a pixel six. I think this was a very good design strategy for Google to differentiate their phones from other people. And it, it's kind of in keeping with some of my favorite design accents from like old Huawei phones. Like the Huawei mate, um, Mate Pro, Mate 10 Pro had an over-under camera, but then had this like horizontal stripe 
that ran the, it was just in the glass, but it ran the, the width of the phone. Those types of accents help, I think, stand out a lot better. And see, exactly, Aditi Anil saying, the camera bump, though, I kind of want the visor to go the entire width. Um, I do, too. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he meant to say he likes the current Pixel look, but he doesn't like the leak of the Fold 2. That, that looks like poop. I don't love it, but I understand why they're doing it in terms of maximizing space and depth for other camera sensors. The thing that I'd like to get your thoughts on, and I'd love to see some comments on this before we kind of wrap up, this is the gadget block, and we, uh, we talk about my quandaries with another gadget review. Uh, getting back into screen sharing here, Another aspect of this is going to a skinnier front display. If this comes to pass, because it's not quite the same aspect ratio as the Z Fold. Um, So like when you open up your Pixel Fold, you get a very squarish rectangle, but it is a rectangle. Um... So this is my Pixel Fold, and you can see, you know, it's longer than it is tall. And that I love having these two panels in a very surface duo kind of orientation. When you are split-screening apps, they're side-by-side, I think you get a better view of each app. On the Galaxy Z Fold, every single time I use a Z Fold, I open it, and then I immediately rotate it 90 degrees so I get the, the longer rectangle orientation. I don't like that. Now, this does not look like Google is trying to copy the Z Fold. This looks a little bit more like what we've seen from Honor and Oppo. This orientation looks a bit closer to the screen orientation. Here, let me um, pull up both screens on uh, my Pixel Fold and on my OnePlus Open. I'm trying to like one-hand these things, and I'm trying not to drop $2,000 phones. So the OnePlus Open is a little skinnier and a little taller, but when you open up the Open, it is almost a perfect square. So I open up the Open, and then if you rotate it 90 degrees, it's a little bit longer, kind of, but it's very similar. Apps will react like you've just changed the the orientation, and then you look at the app and you're like, I don't know, this looks exactly the same. It, the, the, the amount of content that you have on the screen doesn't look like it's changed at all. And I think it's hilarious, like especially in Plex, because Plex doesn't know what to do with the open. So you go scanning while the tablet is technically vertical, and then you push play on a movie and it rotates at 90 degrees, and you're like, it looks exactly the same. I don't know why you needed to rotate 90 degrees. That's... That's kind of silly. So I I don't know. What do we think? Do we think that I personally, I think the OnePlus Open is the better computer hands down. But I really like the aspect ratio on the Pixel Fold. I think the aspect ratio on the Pixel Fold is actually a little bit more useful. And it helps change up other experiences like the difference between watching movies on the outside screen versus the inside screen. And I like that it's a more of a little book form factor that, that is a tangible difference in how I handle it, how I use it, compared to the OnePlus Open. Do we think that Google is going to kind of knock those other Chinese designs? Do we think that this Pixel Fold 2 really is going to look more like a OnePlus Open? They're doing the bigger camera bump 
on the back of the phone, just like the OnePlus Open has a bigger camera bump on the back of the phone. The outer display looks like it might be skinnier. The OnePlus Open is a skinnier outer display. To me, I think it's kind of interesting watching the different sort of evolutions. If we're talking about mini tablets that fold in half and become double thick phones, the Galaxy strategy seems to be one of the less popular solutions to this where you've got a really, really narrow, skinny outer display, and then you open that into being a more 4 by 3 rectangle. So, um, hold on, let me see this back here. Yeah, Kapakash saying, the Pixel and iPhone are the most identifiable out in the wild. You can't miss them. Uh, Dr. Claw, that's a good look. Um, OPO, as far as unfolded. Oh, from the... From the Oppo or from the Pixel Fold 2? Um, Michael Corcoran, I hope that the Pixel Fold 2 render is not real. No visor, portrait mode, shape rather than duo passport shape. Um, So this isn't a render. This looks like it could be a prototype. And I don't know if this is a prototype far enough in manufacturing that we should expect that this is what the Pixel Fold is going to look like or if this is just one of those... Um, temp units where they're working out different strategies for cameras and stuff like that. And the actual device will look something different. Um, From Aditya, you could say that Plex is perplexed when it comes to the orientation. (laughs) Nailed it. You burnt. Um, And then Michael Corcoran saying, yeah, much better with one hand. Plus all the other folds already have the other method. It's redundant. So I'm, I'm kind of torn on this. I really like, I, I, I still hold to um, my point last year. TK and I did sort of like a crossover comparison. We were talking about different foldables. I went on his channel to talk about the Pixel Fold. He came on my channel to talk about the Z Fold. And I really think the OnePlus Open was the best overall foldable, um, especially here in the United States, but also released globally. Um, great cameras, great performance, and, um, and just like a return to a feature-packed device, like even into things like video output through the USB-C. The one thing I wish was different on the OnePlus Open was that it was built a little more like the Pixel Fold or the Surface Duo. I like having the slightly wider screens. It's a little shorter. It's not the same kind of 20 by 9 aspect ratio on our slate phones. You know, like you hold up a slate phone against the Pixel Fold and you can see how much squarer it is, how much flatter a rectangle it is than what we usually put in our pockets now. And, and that's what I feel we kind of lose a little with the open. The app differences and orientation changes, like they seem kind of silly when the phone is almost square. When you open up that tablet, there's so little that we do on tablets that almost square makes sense. Um, unless we had kind of appreciated phones like the BlackBerry Passport better. You know, we, we, we didn't stick with that design philosophy for our devices. So I'll be curious to see. Um, the other big uh, rumor coming for Pixel Fold 2 is that it's going to skip the Tensor 3. So my Pixel 8 Pro has a Tensor 3. It's a good chip. It is getting beat pretty handily by Snapdragon 8 Gen 3s and Dimensity 9300s, but it's a very good performer for what I think Google is trying to focus on for their phones. 
But you get yourself into trouble if your most expensive phone that you sell is using technology that is quickly replaced by less expensive slate phones. So the Pixel Fold running the Tensor 2 coming out the same year as the Pixel 8 running Tensor 3 is not a great look for Google. So this is one of those rumors I really hope is true. I really hope we see the Pixel Fold 2 skip the Tensor 3 and become the new standard bearer. Whatever the newest, most expensive technologies that Google has to offer for their phones, that will go in the phone with the highest price tag. That's going to the Pixel Fold. The Pixel Fold is going to be getting better, more competitive cameras. The, the, The cameras on the Pixel, the first Pixel Fold are good. But you've got a direct showdown with like the Pixel 7a. And there are a couple situations where I feel like the Pixel 7a is going to outperform the more expensive Fold. And the OnePlus Open shows us you shouldn't have to make those kinds of compromises on the most expensive device that your company sells. So um, that could be kind of tricky. I, 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 I really hope that some of these things play out, like the internals. We get an improved uh, fabrication process, Tensor, Tensor 4 maybe brings a slight core configuration change where Tensor 3 is a little less exciting than even Tensor 2 was. And then maybe we also get some radio and some management improvements. And that would be a fun generation over generation improvement. Because that is, I think, where the first Pixel Fold kind of drags the user experience down a bit. Like, compared against a Pixel 7 Pro, the Pixel Fold can run even a little toastier than the 7 Pro can. So it's a, it's a complicated balancing act, but this would help, I think, get Google back in, in gear. This, I think this, this would help Google better iterate on their current strategy, where Tensor... I feel was more than a year behind Qualcomm when it first launched. And every year we've seen little iterations that help catch it up a little bit more. In some ways, like Google's core design, um, CPU designs have been pretty aggressive. They've been really interesting. But overall, chip to chip, Qualcomm maintained a lead, MediaTek maintained a lead. But every year we should see Tensor catch up even a little bit more. If we can launch into Tensor 4, I think hopefully we'll have a good reply to the Snapdragon 8 Gen 3, but then we'll be talking about the 8 Gen 4 and the Dimensity 9400 at the end of the year. The cycle is just going to keep abbreviating, and Google needs to show that they can catch back up, especially as they start looking at shifting their chip fabrication from Samsung to TSMC. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Dr. Claw, the form factor of the Pixel Fold is superior. The letdowns were various aspects of hardware, especially the battery life. Kind of reminds me of the LG V10 and how it gives me battery anxiety. (laughs) Uh, The Pixel Fold is... I have not used it as much out in the field with my SIM card inside of it. And even against the Pixel 8 Pro, I just don't trust it will last me how I need it to over a day of heavy use. Um, Especially now that I've been playing with phones like the OnePlus Open and the OnePlus 12, where the battery life got real good. It got got real good. So that's pretty great. And, um, you know, until we get replaceable batteries, this stuff is going to matter a lot. So, yeah. (laughs) 
um, from Gabaletta. That's one thing I do miss about my Z Fold 3. It wasn't as squared off as the Z Fold 5. I, I mean, like those little nuanced design changes, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see Samsung and Google start emulating some of the more popular designs from Huawei, Xiaomi, and Oppo. And especially with the critical reaction, the critical response that the OnePlus Open got, I think that's actually what we're going to see in the United States. I think if any company is now going to start, if if Google is going to start targeting any brand, we're not going to see Google try to emulate Samsung because they also want to keep Samsung happy. But they also need to make their own standalone product that can represent what Google envisions for an Android tablet. I think they're going to go after OnePlus. There are a lot of design elements on the the first Pixel Fold that remind me of the Surface Duo. But the Surface Duo idea didn't really uh, succeed in this market, right? Microsoft pulled the plug on it. So now I think we're going to see the Pixel team. Well, what's the other competitor that we can kind of adopt some of these ideas from. And I think we're going to see Google go after OnePlus. The OnePlus Open has a lot of good ideas that I think Google could benefit from. So um, while we get into just kind of like the last 10 minutes here, and I'll probably end up running a little bit longer, uh, I want to wrap the show just talking about an experience that I've never had before. Um, I am going to name a name here, and it's unfortunate because this is my first experience working with the company and I'm really excited by these product segments. So I've been a huge fan of mini PCs, like little Nook clones and mini desktops. And I think there is a brilliant performance per dollar conversation when we take a last generation or two generation or even three generation old laptop chip and we put it into a smaller enclosure to run as a mini desktop. Um, I've worked with a number of these brands, like Geekom, I've had brilliant experiences with. Uh, Ace PC, I had a really good experience with. There have been a, a few others over the years. I mean, the Intel Nook line specifically. I still run a ninth gen uh, Core i9 behind our TV. Like, it's still going strong. That is a great little mini PC, and it's been a great little game uh, game solution uh, for playing PC games on our TV. So uh, this is my first experience with Ace Magic. I've not worked with this company in the past, but they've been really popular in a lot of these conversations. But I'm worried about some of their QA. Specifically, I got this Ace Magic laptop. And I've reached out to the company and I hope they're going to reply, but I was going to have a video out on this laptop. This is the AX 16 pro really great specs. The MSRP is ridiculously high, but it's perpetually on sale. So yeah, they say it's a $900 laptop. You're not going to buy this at 900, but if you can shop it for around 500 and sometimes it's on sales below 500, what you get is a remarkable machine, uh, an AMD 5700U, 16 gigs of RAM, 512 gigs of storage. It's in that ballpark where it's putting out more powerful internals than like a Chromebook Plus at a lower price. It does help continue that conversation on using older chips that are still high performance solutions. But I started setting this thing up and uh, I'm really glad that I just kind of get into this habit. I have 
uh, personal accounts that I do all of my actual life in. And then I have reviewer accounts that I put on review phones to install apps and then, uh, you know, like kind of test performance. I'm not really going to live in that phone or live in that PC, but, you know, it's kind of firewall between my actual personal information and then what I do as a reviewer. So I'm setting up this AX16 Pro, and while I'm setting it up, I get a, a Windows Defender warning. And so I immediately disconnect it from Wi-Fi, and it says that it's detected malware. At the time, the only things that I had installed on this machine were Firefox, DaVinci Resolve, um, Geekbench 6, and VLC. So I, I, I disconnect it from, from my network, and uh, I, I set up a, a portable drive, a portable apps drive, which some virus scanning software on there, and it confirms. There's a nasty little virus that has a history of doing things like acquiring user information and leeching passwords and logins for different accounts and getting into banking information. And you're like, oh, okay, this one's actually pretty bad. This isn't like a false positive or I wasn't using cracked software to do some of my testing. I mean, before I was really making money as a reviewer to get around the license restrictions on things like video editing software. Sometimes I would crack that video editing software. I think a lot of us have been in places like that before. DaVinci Resolve, I don't need to do that, so I don't. Um, and that one really kind of scared me. Like, thankfully, I hadn't set this machine up with my actual personal accounts. Like, I was looking at this laptop like, oh, this is something that maybe I could also, like, you know, kind of donate to the school or give to a family member or something like that. And it really changes up that part of the conversation where I am making these recommendations on little mini portable systems because they're inexpensive, and one of the things that I pointed to, especially like in my Geekom videos, is you can buy a mini Nook and set it up yourself and put in your own RAM and your own storage and install your own operating system. And that can be a little bit more expensive, but then you have a bit more control over what you're doing. Or you can go to a company like Ace Magic, Ace PC, B-Link, Geekom, all of these brands, and you can buy a pre-built machine that's going to come to you. For this to have arrived at my place the way that it did, I and the fact that I was able to detect this not on any kind of funky partition, not in the firmware of the device, it was in a file in Windows, means that as they were flashing these machines, I'm assuming, and I don't have a reply yet from the manufacturer, but I am assuming that they are kind of gray market getting their keys for Windows. And as they flashed an image on a batch of machines, someone was able to add malware or a virus specifically to that image. And then that gets flashed on a bunch of machines in a factory. And then they get these keys sort of not black market, but gray market. And I mean, people have had good experiences buying Windows keys online. I... I don't know where you go to shop those and get good deals on them. Um, but ostensibly, you're paying <laughs> the manufacturer to have Windows pre-installed and ready ready to go. Well, let me just get one more drink of water here because I'm getting kind of dry. 
The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at MeAudio for hooking up the promo code now. Let's get on with the show. But this now kind of threw up enough of a red flag. I went back and I checked all of my other machines. None of my other mini PCs have had issues like this. None of my Geekom. I mean, like, I was really upset. And uh, am I going to have to issue some sort of video apology? Like, I've been recommending these machines. And if you bought one on my recommendation, they probably stole all your banking data. And I'm so sorry. Um... None of my Geekoms and my Ace PC were all totally free and clear. Everything was fine. And the Ace PC, I also just recently flashed over to Linux. So again, kind of getting away from Windows malware, just that machine's running. Um, now it's I flashed it over to just a, a regular Ubuntu. Um, but it got me really, really anxious. So the other s- system that Ace PC sent over was a more traditional desktop uh, mini PC. I put the put it back in the box. And the one good thing that kind of came out of all of this was it gave me a crash course education in how to quickly kind of work on Windows to a, to a higher degree than what I'd been doing in the past. So this is the AD08. This is one of the newest machines that Ace, P- uh, Ace Magician, God, I got to be really careful here. Ace PC is a separate manufacturer than Ace Magic. This is an Ace Magic. The laptop is an Ace Magic. The new Ace Magic, this is a 12th gen Intel. I pulled the SSD out of this machine and I did a whole bunch of virus scanning and forensics. And, and like, it actually uh, got me to uh, invest in a better M.2 reader. So I also got this little bad boy um, so that I could, I could uh, not only read my 
portable SATA SSDs, but also I can uh, scan and I can uh, copy over system images to my M.2 drives. So again, this was like a good upgrade. I really needed to have made this upgrade sooner, but this prompted me to really kick my own butt and get after it. The box here is miserable. I must get a different container for that. So this machine is free and clear. This machine came to my door safe, but now I'm worried. I'm worried that part of my recommendation on these system builders where this is kind of a generic case. We've seen a couple different manufacturers use this case. They're getting these parts, they're putting them in, they're doing their own flashing of software. That software is coming with their own pre-installed services. And now I feel like I need to make that a bigger part of the recommendation or conversation. Moving forward, even from companies I trust, and I've done business with in the past, and I think they do business in a reputable way. I'm not always sure they will be able to guarantee the QA and the manufacturing on these machines. And that kind of kind of kills me because, like I said, I've had good experiences in the past. This is the first time I've had a big, scary red flag pop up in one of these PC reviews. But now I feel it's irresponsible of me to not say, you're getting a great deal. You need to learn a little bit about Windows. You need to learn a little bit about protecting yourself against these kinds of threats of how to kind of get around some of these problems and how to uh, fix some of these situations if they crop up or do things that will mitigate any potential problem. Like you're just not going to have an issue if you do this. So uh, the, the good thing that came out of this is I did not realize that there were built-in tools in Windows to do things like driver dumps. Like every time I've set up a new laptop, I've gone trolling manufacturers' websites to look for all the drivers I need to get the laptop back up and running if I want to eliminate, you know, crap uh, manufacturer software. Uh, which one was it? It was the MSI Creator. The last MSI creator that I reviewed had a copy of Norton antivirus that could not be removed. Every single tool that MSI and Norton made available, I would run the tool. It would say successful. You've uninstalled it. You've gotten rid of this. I would reboot the machine and I'd get a nag. You need to reinstall Norton. There was some utility that was running on that machine that I could not get rid of until I nuked Windows, reinstalled Fresh directly from an image of Windows that I downloaded directly from Microsoft, and then I went through the MSI site to download all of the individual drivers. So from this experience, I found that there is a much better tool that you can do in Windows, like just from a command line prompt, and it just dumps all of the data that you need, and then when you're setting up your machine Fresh, you tell the Windows device manager, oh, here's a folder, go to town. And then it reinstalls your drivers from that, from that folder. So now that's going to be something that I'm going to be more heavily recommending in all of my mini PC and inexpensive PC videos, but it takes out one of the, one of the most crucial aspects of buying one of these systems was it's pre-built. It's ready to go. You have paid the manufacturer to take care of this stuff for you, and you shouldn't have to worry about it. But unfortunately, in saving money 
and getting a machine that costs you less but has a, a much higher performance per dollar, that now needs to be a part of the conversation moving forward. If you're worried about these types of security threats, and you should be, I feel it is best practice to start the setup offline, get through that, see if anything red flags, then bring it online to finish running all of your updates. And if you're really worried about what might be happening on that machine, the best course of action is to nuke that SSD and reinstall everything fresh if you can. So this, this one really kind of, kind of threw me. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what other people might have or for suggestions. Like, how do you broach that conversation with your audience? Like, I'm trying to look at other people and having, you know, having similar issues. There have been a few other videos about Ace Magic, apparently had some issues like this in the past. This is my very first interaction with the brand. I've never had any previous relationship with this company, and I don't know what to do about that. Like, I don't want it to sound like, oh, they're riddled with viruses, because they're not. But now there is a, a fear. This isn't FUD. There is an, an actual practical fear over... How do you handle setting up one of their products when you get it fresh? So I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I had a rough one with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, like Gabaletta saying, I just recently got a GM GMK Tech Ryzen 7 7840HS, and that thing is a screamer. So the the Ryzen system that I have is a seven 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 three five. That thing is a beast. And again, it's in exactly this form factor, this little teeny form factor. And you pop in an SSD and a SATA drive and like you've got yourself a file server there. You just made yourself a stew. Um, It is incredible what that little machine is capable of. Uh, Dave Burns, Juan got me to buy a mini PC to run my Plex server head. Because that's what I'm doing right now too. Um, I'm using, uh, now I'm using a beefier Geekom. Again, one of their AMD solutions. uh, I think with the 5700 also. Uh, but it is just such a beast of of routing all of that data. It really is a great um, a great solution. Uh, let's see, do, 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 do. from Gabalette again with the current Ace Magic scandal. When I got my mini PC from GMK Tech, I did a fresh Windows install to make sure there's no shady software or malware. And that's another thing too is it bothers me. Older generations of Windows. It used to be a little bit easier to see what all of your security and recovery partitions looked like. But on Windows 11, you got to go digging for that stuff. So the fastest way to see if there are multiple partitions that might be hiding malware is literally to reinstall Windows. And when you start up the Windows installation process, it gives you the option to delete all of those partitions. And that, to me, is also a part of this, like, man, to keep people safe, I'm going to recommend just nuke all that. And then Windows will reset those, will set up new partitions on a fresh install of Windows. But you'll know you got Windows directly from Microsoft. You're not going to be playing this game of, oh, uh, well, maybe if I just do a virus scan, it might get rid of it. But really, the malware was hiding in a partition and you don't have access to scan that partition directly through uh, Windows File Explorer. Yeah, and Flying Squirrel. Obviously, Linux is absolutely a great recommendation as well. I'm pointing to Windows because one of the key selling points of these systems is if you're familiar with Windows or you're doing work like in an office and you need a thin client that can kind of like do work remote, that's the IT speak that you're probably going to encounter. But again, Ubuntu is so good. 
<laughs> I've had wonderful experiences, like not just installing it fresh, but then also using it inside Windows. <laughs> like it's great. So uh, it, it's really not that difficult to find a series of apps and services that can move you over to Ubuntu in the same way that someone might be able to use Chrome OS as their, as their daily driver. If you're the kind of person who can go from a Windows laptop to a Chromebook, then you're also the kind of person who could probably go from a Windows desktop to some kind of Linux build and not miss what's going on in Windows. And I'm getting pretty close to just kind of making that transition. I really want to go through just maybe one more rebuild of my big old massive workstation. But then when I start to see what the performance differences might be with Linux versus Windows for DaVinci Resolve, this main workstation is probably going to stop being a half and half machine. I built it mostly to get my work done, but it was also nice that I could play games on it. Linux has good support for gaming, but really these days I'm spending more and more time on a little mini PC gaming behind our TV and then on my Steam Deck. And that's kind of where I see the future of my relationship with gaming go. So I'm not going to pour as much money into my workstation to also make it a good gaming solution. So while I might be able to do some Linux gaming, that's great. That's awesome. I'll tinker with it. I'll play with it. But the main focus is going to be the giant box under my desk is the most efficient solution I have for cutting up video, for writing scripts, for doing all my work. And I'm getting really close to making that transition happen. Oh, Doomerb. That's actually a good point, too. I've heard other people mention this. I've never done it. Uh, for drivers, I personally like to use Snappy Driver, Installer, Origin. Never had issues, although all of my laptops are much older. Um, I, I'll try and add it to the show notes. I probably will forget while I'm setting up the podcast. But uh, there was a link that I, I found, someone doing a commentary on this. It is a one-line command in, in, in Windows, like in a DOS prompt. And it pulls all of your installed drivers and dumps them in a folder for you. So instead of even installing another app or another service to install that, uh, for that hardware, uh, you, you set up the machine offline. You really want to be scanning everything and doing virus scans and, and having like portable apps and services if you're worried about the security. But if you get into the machine and you don't see any immediate red flags, just pull those drivers save them to a little USB drive, wipe the machine, and then as you're setting it back up, a bunch of stuff is going to show as, like, not installed. And then you go into your device manager and just say, all the drivers are in this bucket, go find them. And then you're good. And you don't have to go looking. What I like is that it's a completely offline reinstall. And that's what I think is cool. So, yeah, you do need to work from one computer to set up your other computer, but it's been working really well. And you can also do some other tweaks, like if you use Rufus to like make the media for your USB drive to install Windows, you can maybe delete some of the more obnoxious Windows setup requirements, like logging into a Microsoft account, which I've maybe been doing on a lot of these things. So uh, that could also be a good perk. Um, let's see. Yeah, Gabaletta, my mini PC also lives behind my TV for 1080p gaming. They're, they're great. So Flowtech, I have seen this. Unfortunately, I got to close this show out because I don't really have to go to the bathroom. Um, Juan, have you heard of the Xbox news about the business event they are having this week? 
So there's been a lot of chatter about Xbox, whether or not they're going to keep making consoles. I got a level with y'all. Um, whenever it comes to news about Microsoft now and the Xbox division, I'm probably going to need to be very careful about what I say because we have relationships that are very closely tied to game studios that Microsoft now owns. So I am a party to some privileged information that I cannot share with other people as it pertains to Microsoft's interests in gaming. So unfortunately, that is going to be something where I'm probably just going to draw a line in the sand where my commentary on gaming is very broad and not very specific as it pertains to individual game studios and the publishers. I've never really made gaming a huge part of my commentary on this channel, mostly because I just like gaming to be my hobby and I don't feel like I need to monetize all of my hobbies. But especially moving forward, that is going to be something that I'm going to be probably even a little cagier about what I can comment on and what I can share. So folks, uh, I definitely appreciate you letting me go on some of these tangents and some of these, uh, some of these side topics because it's been, it's been a lot. I mean, there's, there's just like a lot of life happening. And then some of these experiences, like I've been gadget reviewing for decades and I've never encountered this situation before. And again, if, if anyone else has additional thoughts on this, please hit me up uh, on the Patreon, on YouTube, on social media, other thoughts that you might have about how to handle something like this or how much of this needs to be prefaced in a review because I'm not even sure how much I need to scare people. I feel I do need to call attention to this issue and I don't know where in that conversation it ranks. I, you know, it. I've never dealt with it before. So anyway, um, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out this week. I've got some headphone reviews. I've got some phone videos to follow up on. I'm hoping to get a laptop review out soon on a different laptop. It's some really cool stuff. And we're leading into our conversations around MWC. So this week is sort of a little bit of that lull before we get into a whole new slate of, of phones and announcements and launches. So I hope you're along for the ride because there's a ton of stuff that we're going to be following up on. Folks, thanks so much for this uh, for this chat. This was a really fun week this week. Uh, I, I hope everybody out there had a safe and fun and vibrant. I don't know what word I want to use there. But I hope you ate a lot of junk food on Sunday. Because I ate a lot of junk food on Sunday. And it was great. I had a really good time. Uh, uh, be sure to catch all of the other shows and videos that are coming out throughout the week. You know, obviously support our, our buddies like TK and Josh and uh, Tech Odyssey and Tech Tablets and all those guys making good content. Catch the live streams from Gadget Goddess and Easy Computer Solutions, Ike, Ike's Tech Talk, uh, LaShawn, Holla at Your Boy. TK and I will be streaming on Thursday. Uh, who am I missing? El Jefe Reviews, usually streaming over the weekend. Uh, Nomad Tech Project, some really good good groups out there sharing some really fun insight on their experiences using this tech. So uh, have a fantastic week. I want you to do awesome with your technology. I want you to be awesome with your technology. And I want you to take care of yourself so you can keep taking care of others. I'll catch you back here next week. I love you all. Be well. Recording voiceover, spoken word is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. 
Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today.